Hey everybody, it's Matt Johnson here. Welcome to the Pursuing Results podcast where successful people share one book that changed their life. We have uh, an amazing guest. We're going to talk about an amazing book, which actually the guest introduced me to here shortly ago and, and has already begun the process of changing my life. And we're going to talk about what it's done for him and some of the results that he's seen in his business and how he's helped other businesses grow with the information and the takeaways from this book. And then we'll share a little bit about uh, what it's doing for me and some of my takeaways as well. So this is going to be a really fun episode. Uh, so do yourself a favor, subscribe right here on YouTube that way you get all the future episodes as well as short clip videos and then head on over uh, to iTunes or Stitcher if you prefer the audio version if you want to listen to that in the gym or in the car on the way to, uh, to and from an appointment make sure to head on over there and subscribe to the audio version but let's uh, let's get to the guest so he's a really really interesting guy Pasquale Scopoliti and uh, and I encountered him a couple months ago and reached out to him to book him on another podcast and uh, was really just I guess struck up uh, an interesting relationship with him and he sent me the book kind of out of the blue. He just asked me what my address was and says, I want to send you a book. So I had no idea what was coming. And uh, I got this amazing, amazing book called Managing the Professional Services Firm uh, by David Meister, which then opened the door to all the works of David Meister. And there's so much there that uh, we might actually do an entire separate podcast just on his stuff. But for now, we'll limit ourselves. We will attempt to limit ourselves to just this amazing book. And with that, I want to welcome uh, Pasquale, known as the Conciliori. And I want you to explain to everyone what the etymology of that word is quickly and, and why that word is so significant and why you chose to kind of wrap yourself in that mantle of the conciliatory. I absolutely will. And, and hey, and thanks for having me. Uh, first thing we're going to do, though, is work on my last name. Scopeliti, not Liddy. Oh, there's, there's no way I, a normal male American, can get away with saying it like that. No, but you can get the E instead of the I. Scopeliti. Okay, okay. That, that I can do. Scopoliti. There you go. Absolutely perfect. All right. The conciliori. For, for those of uh, uh, the people that are going to be hearing or, or, or watching us on this, the, the whole thing is still a podcast. Even if you watch it, it's not like a video yeah. cast or something. Okay. Yeah, so this podcast. Too complicated. <laughs> All right. So this podcast, anybody who's watching this that's familiar with the movie, uh, The Godfather or the book, uh, by Mario Puzo, will have some context, maybe a little bit more than you did. Uh, it's Tom Hagen's character. He is an Irish-German, uh, almost adopted person into the family, but he grows up and he becomes the first non-Sicilian conciliori in the story. This is a big problem. He ends up not really being a wartime conciliori. So for those people who know the whole story and understand all of this, I always explain, I am a true wartime conciliori, and my claim, it's a fictional one, all right, but my claim is that if the Corleone family had only had me, Don Santino would still be alive to this day, just like James Kahn is still alive to this day. <laughs> okay, and I will have to go back and watch the movies to have any idea what you're talking about. If you need me to send them, you know, I'm good at that kind of thing. Yeah, you are good at that. <laughs> So, uh, we believe in gifts in this world of abundance that we live in. Uh, yeah. So, the conciliary is just the Italian word for counselor. And uh, having struggled greatly in my youth to find my way in the world and to figure out how I would make a living and, you know, keep body and soul and keep my family together and not lose my family and, and my wife. You know, I'm, I'm married way up above me. You know, she comes from rich people and, you know. At any rate, she's a much better person than I am, you know, I, way up. So in order to keep my family, I had to learn what I did in the world. And evidently, I'm kind of like 
programmed to be the best possible counselor. And in the Italian family structure, the Don, or as you called him, the patriarch, the head of the family is the one with all the power, and the consigliere has absolutely zero power, none whatsoever, with the exception of his mind, his ability to understand, to analyze, and his strength and force of character to challenge the Don, to be a friend to the Don, to be compatriots, both strategically and tactically. I end up having these abilities. And so my clients, I've specialized since 1993 uh, in the recruiting industry. Before that, for six years, I survived basically selling my services to small businesses, uh, pretty much across the spectrum, although I did do some work with large businesses and do enjoy large business. Nonetheless, there's, there's kind of a natural relationship there between a single conciliori, me, and a single Don, who is the owner of what is pretty much by definition a small business, therefore. Right, and so, which makes total sense. Yeah. And so as the conciliore, I started, what, my, my favorite closing line was that I know nothing about your business. I know nothing about you. I know nothing about your products. I know nothing about your competitors. I know nothing about the problems you solve. And knowing nothing about that, my ignorance is the reason you're going to hire me because you're going to explain everything about your business to me. We're going to analyze it together. What I analyze, I improve, and we're going to build your business in a different manner than you ever would if you didn't hire me. And I, so, you know, as a non-specialist, as a diehard generalist, I love that. Uh, now, really, to make a very long story much shorter, uh, when I discovered the recruiting world, there was such a natural fit. It still took me over a year. So it was the end of 93 when I got hired by my first recruiting client. Uh, it was the beginning of 95 when I made my decision to specialize. And that was a very painful decision for me because I love being a generalist. Uh, but I specialized in recruiting from then till now. And I believe I know more about the industry and can coach a better performance in the recruiting industry than any other person in the world. All right. And, uh, but you're also, and you've been working on some, I guess not content, but you've written uh, The Switch, which initially started out as kind of your magnum opus for business improvement for recruiters, but then that has now expanded in the sense that you have The Switch for everyone, right? And so you're, you're kind of like yes. now entering this period where you're pivoting back into being a very informed generalist, shall we say. Uh, a very happy one at that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the switch, was, <laughs> uh, the switch was written in 2009. Uh, I did have in my mind my target audience for recruiters, and I make some very limited reference to recruiters, but even from the time I released it in its first edition in 2009, there really was always the intention that it would be for a broader market than just recruiters. And I've never found any way, it's now in the, the original version is now in its second edition from 2013. That's the one that you get at my website, theconciliori.com. Um, I better spell that, C-O-N-S-I-G-L-I. O-R-I, theconciliori.com, uh, is where you get the uh, switch, which is, and you get that free just for putting in your email, uh, is in its second edition, which was done in uh, 2013. And there's still a very small uh, recruiting focus there, although it works for recruiters with incredible power. 
But like you were saying, uh, I've got a new version that, that completely redesigned all the same concepts, the same principles, but it's been developed a great deal farther. And the switch for everyone, as you, you know, exactly nailed, really does attempt to live up to that name. And so there's no reference to recruiting in the 2015 uh, book that I've got now available, uh, the Switch for Everyone. Yeah. Which which I'm working my way through, by the way, and it's really, really good. So just going through and doing some of the, the mental exercises uh, would be mm -hmm. incredibly valuable for, for anyone to do. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, but just the the level of thought that it forces you to put into yourself as a person, which then kind of transitions down into yourself as a business person is incredible. So, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. So they will have the, uh, the link to your website in the show notes. So people can go download that. Like you said, it's free. Very good. Uh, so, so let's get back to the, uh, the books so and managing the professional service firm. So you kind of set the stage a little bit on what your business life as a whole has been like in the timeline, but tell me a little bit about when the book came into your life. What did your business look like at that point? I, I will in just a moment, if I may, but I'd like to stay here in the present for just a moment longer uh, because there's a tremendous connection that I've never verbally shared with you in my mind over my work in the switch, my hope that you will work your way through it, and the book I sent you, Managing mm -hmm. the Professional Services. Well, firm. do tell. This, this, is, this is new information. It is. Uh, <laughs> at any rate... <laughs> um, the first principle of the switch is that you must know your dream. That's the very first principle. Everything flows after that. And so as I was getting to know you, you instantly had, you and your friend Scott Solari, you, the both of you together, instantly had an impact on me at the very level of my dream for my business. It was absolutely immediate unlike anything anyone else has ever done for me. And now uh, I'll, I'm soon going to be doing a uh, video together with Scott where I'm going to give him uh, the recommendation on how that all works out. So I won't get into any details at all right now. Okay. But I was hit at the very level of my dream for my business by the two of you together from the moment we met. And as I thought that through, it was Maester's book that seemed the most perfect bridge between us because I knew that you were building a professional service firm in service to other professional service firms. Yeah, 100% true. And so I knew that Maester's book would strike you with what I call dream force. Mm. I knew that when I sent that book to you, it was gonna crack open something in your mind and in your heart that would be at the very level of your dream for your practice, your profession, and your business itself. Now, I still don't, I don't get your business yet. <laughs> I, I, I'm starting to get the whole podcast thing, sort of, you know, um, and all this technology stuff. It's difficult for me. I'm so old school. But I know what you're doing for my business. Right. Knowing that, I knew that Maester was going to speak to your heart. And that was a connection I really wanted to establish. Yeah, well, you you nailed it. I, I don't know how, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I absolutely devoured that book. I'm, I'm probably on rereading it for the second or third time just since you sent it to me a couple months ago. I bought extra copies to send to other people. I've moved on to, I'm just about finished with True Professionalism, which is another amazing book of his. And then there's so much other stuff that he's written. I just ordered another of his book the other day. And then did you know he's got... Uh, <laughs> He's got like podcast interviews. He did a podcast series back in like 07 or something like that. I mean, there's so much stuff to dive no, into. I had no idea of that. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's on his website. So you, you can actually listen to the concepts in his own words. It's fantastic. Yes. 
I'll, so I'm yeah, you uh, you definitely nailed right. it because it's it definitely cracked something something <laughs> open in my head. That's for sure. I, I knew it would. I, I really did. Uh, now I will answer your actual question about going back to uh, my business before and what this book has done for me and in my service to my clients. Yeah. So blundering as I did into the recruiting world, uh, it was actually through a cold call encounter where the prospect had no interest whatsoever in what I had to offer. You know, back then I was cold calling out of the yellow pages. Um, and I still cold call. I'm like, I may be the last man standing that makes cold calls. <laughs> I believe in them. Uh, and so it was the cold call back in 1993 to a prospect who ended up having no interest in, you know, my service directly. Uh, but he ended up giving me a referral because not only do I cold call, I also close on referrals as we old school salesmen are trained. <laughs> and so I, I closed and I closed hard like really hard for this particular referral. It ended up being my very first recruiting client. So I met him in, in September of 1993, he hired me in October. And so then uh, he was a member of Management Recruiters International. Uh, and anybody who knows the recruiting world knows that name, MRI. They're kind of like the original and they're the, the the source from which our entire industry really has grown. Uh, and they remain the largest franchise network of recruiting operations in the world to this day. Uh, at any rate, so he was one of the top performing. Uh, my friend, Jim Dykeman, my first client, uh, was one of the top performing, and he was a member of one of the leadership committees amongst the franchisees. And so he referred me to all the other members in his um, uh, leadership committee, and from there, uh, I had such fantastic recommendations that throughout all of 94, I had a growing number of clients. I actually ended up not prospecting for any other type. And that was what led me to the decision in 95. It's like, all right, you know, if you're not going to prospect anywhere else, then you've made your decision. So I, I really had to think to get through. Well, it was somewhere in 94 or 95, I don't remember exactly which, when I was at a Barnes & Noble, I believe it was. No, it was a Borders bookstore. Uh, it was a Borders bookstore, and I'm going to call it uh, Santa Clara, California, that I just happened to blunder into David Meister's book on a bookshelf. You know, it's from 1993, and so it was a year or two later that I saw it in the store in the business section and bought it on a lark. Not really on a lark. I mean, I started reading it right there in the store, and it like hit me we, we can't We can't help that. That's, that's what bookstores are for. They're for preview reading. Absolutely, you know, and so bookstores are going to survive. We we we'll figure that one out. Let's hope so. All right. <laughs> They'll be. They may be called Starbucks with a bookstore inside, but I'm I'm okay, okay with that. I'd be totally fine by that. Uh, although I'm not a big fan of Starbucks, but anyway, yeah. that's another topic. Uh, we can't have everything in common. Exactly. Uh, you know, I go there in a lurch. At any rate, <laughs> uh, so I, I got the book, and you know, it spoke to me immediately. But then as I started reading it, I struggled. I, I just couldn't crack the code. And so I read the first chapter, the second chapter, wasn't getting much. I like, you know, uh, just cracked and folded on the third chapter. I put it away. It took me, I don't know, six months, come back to it. And I had a question that opened the whole book up for me. 
what I realized is that when I was reading it, I was finding, you know, he's such a good writer and he's so clear and he's such a brilliant thinker. And he's talking about such basics, such fundamentals, such absolute, like everybody ought to do this and everybody ought to know it. And I'm going, well, yeah, but who does it? Right. Do I do this? Do I behave this way? Do my clients do this? I mean, they'll understand it if we talk about it instantly because it's logical, it's common sense. You know, it's, it's actually even quite intuitive. Everybody pretty much knows this stuff kind of sorta, though none of us have formalized it the way Maester has. But none of us do it. And I'm looking at my growing number of clients, especially, you know, in the recruiting industry where I was at the time virtually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, here are these little shops. They're, all, they're franchises. They're given a fabulous foundation. The MRI Foundation is a fantastic one. The training is excellent. The support is fantastic. It gets you going with a business that if you simply do their system, it's going to make you money. You're going to be just fine, assuming you succeed with it. Now, they have a little bit larger failure rate than most people want to know about. But even still, for those who make it, they do fabulous. And it's an tremendous value they love the community they love the culture they love the annual meetings and, and and the whole structure it's beautiful but what they can't do is help you grow your business past that fundamental model hmm. and so in working with each of here's another way to say the same point matt uh in any professional service firm i don't care how plain vanilla it looks like from one to the next they always reflect the heart and character of the owner so the strengths of the owner are there in the firm. The weaknesses of the owner are there in the firm. The limits that the firm does not rise up over, those are always from the character of the owner who drives the firm himself. And so Maester in his layout, and I'll give you the one single most important construct that he hit, hit me with, and it's in the first two chapters, I think most especially in chapter two, um, most meaningfully, I mean, just it's a transformational concept we'll get to in just a minute. But he gave me a way of understanding my clients' businesses on the other side of the basics and fundamentals that they got from their franchisor. So I was able to look not only at all the recruiting shops I was serving as professional service firms, but also by way of the professional services strengths and weaknesses of the owner that set the tone, set the direction, set, uh, again, the strengths and weaknesses of the company itself. Uh, Maester opened that up for me so that basically from then till now, so this is 94, 95, and then pretty intensely in 96. By 96, I'd read the book three or four or five times, had worked with, uh, you know, between five and 20, 10, maybe 15 different clients implementing some, you know, part here, some part there, et cetera. I had enough experience that it basically wrote itself right into my own operating system. And so I was able, as I say, from then till now, to have a professional service firm vision for each recruiting client I serve. And of course, that really does generalize to any other area. But <laughs> for each recruiting firm I serve, that harkens all the way back then, and I'm able to serve them in growing their professional service firm on top of their recruiting foundation. Gotcha. Okay. So the impression I get, and not not knowing a lot about MRI and that and the system that you talk about, but just from the outside looking in, it oh. sounds like they teach how to become an individual successful salesperson 
if you want to call it that in the recruiting space, but it's essentially someone that can build a successful sales model on their own, but they don't... No. No? No. Okay. Uh, no. Um, that's actually a little bit more my own emphasis. Oh, in the recruiting world, we have two different kinds of leaders. We have a billing manager and we have a non-billing manager. Now, as the years have gone by, MRI has had to serve and support the billing manager more and more because it ends up being the dominant model no matter what. But the original MRI vision was for a non-billing manager. So what they want you to do is lease your space, hire four account executives and any other support team, and they're very strong. This is a beautiful thing about their model. They want you to have a solid cash base so that you can get through all the difficulties of the first six, 12, or even longer months. So their right. economic foundation is absolutely solid. I totally support that. Okay. But the idea of starting out as a non-billing manager was something uh, that was really being strongly emphasized back in the early 90s when I first met them. I opposed it from the get-go, and I still oppose it to this day. I, I, I teach all of my clients that if they have not succeeded as a recruiter themselves, then they need to invest in that now. And I don't care if it's nothing other than one or two days a week where you focus intensely on learning how to find customers, how to find candidates, how to make the match, et cetera. I want all of my business owners that hire me to be successful recruiters in their own right. That is absolutely contrary to the original MRI model as I came to understand it. Oh, interesting. Um, and so let me just refine that a little more tightly for you. They teach you how to be a business owner of a recruiting firm, not how to be a recruiter. Right, right. And so as such, they provide fabulous training, fundamentals, tools, services, support, community, all kinds of stuff. But the, the real MRI model, and that may have changed over the past years. I'm, you know, the franchisors don't really like me that much. I'm the ultimate outsider. <laughs> so I'm not sure. You know, you can't hold MRI to anything. You know, my perceptions may right. be very old by now. <laughs> okay. But the way I understand it is that the ultimate model is to be the owner of the firm and to have your people be trained by MRI fabulously, great training, great structure, fantastic tactics, uh, and stuff that really does make money for everybody who goes along with it, but not quite what you were just saying. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So essentially, they're teaching them how to build a sales team without themselves having been successful exactly. salespeople first. Exactly. Yeah. Now, over the years, the best managers have always been the billing managers. Now, often they will come off a desk. And by the way, that's something I love to coach. So, you know, if somebody comes to me, they've been a billing manager 10, 15 years. They've mastered the entire art form. Don't know how to come. I love coaching that. It's a blast. So there is a fabulous function for the non-billing manager. I'm not actually opposed to that if mm -hmm. we've mastered the fundamentals of the business first. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, now, let's go back to Baker, though. It is this mix. I mean, think about how he talks about the various levels of skill that you bring to your professional practice. This is exactly the kind of thing that Mason is talking about, analyzed down to the recruiting firm operation. So if you're going to invest in yourself, he always wants you to build your skills, right? That's a fundamental master construct, right? Yep, absolutely. And so for me, in, in serving a new client, I want him to master all the basic skills of recruiting before we start working on the business itself. I want him to have that core there so that he can bring, he or she can bring value to a single transaction 
in the most ultimate manner possible. So the very best candidate for the very best company with the most beautiful match, where everybody feels like the magic was made to happen. I want the leader of the company to be able to do that hands-on him or herself. Then once that's laid down, and once you have a team that has mastered those fundamentals, now we have what we might call a David Meister question. What will be the design of the services firm that you're going to grow from this point forward. Right. Okay. So yes, yeah, so you're doing two things. So you so it exposed the the fact that in in other words to grow their services firm, they first have to deal with some of the limitations within themselves. You're helping people do that. And then once oh, they yeah. get some of those things mastered to where they can bring value to the individual transaction like you mentioned, then and you master some of the sales fundamentals so that you have the right, the credibility, you deserve the right to manage a sales team. Then you can move on to, okay, well, what's the sales yes. team, the function of this professional services firm I'm building out of this sales team? Exactly. Let, mm -hmm. let me make one more point in emphasis there. Every franchisee, just like every business person, just like every salesperson, is completely and utterly unique. And yeah. so uh, looking, what was it, uh, figure 13-1. Do you remember the page? Let me see. In true professionalism. Here it is. Yeah. Uh, page, I have to put it far away because I don't have my glasses, 116. Um, the, this uh, figure 13.1 here, what's it called? Standardized process. Oh, no, no, that's... Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the, the pharmacist, the nurse, the brain surgeon, and yes. the psychotherapist. All right. I guarantee you, not only does this particular diagram apply to every single individual I meet as the owner of a recruiting shop or any, each recruiting shop will fall slightly more into one quadrant as opposed to another. Yeah. And so every owner is absolutely unique. And so we always actually have to start out with what they're good at, but not doing enough of, or not doing well enough, but that where they know how to succeed. That's part of the conciliar, that's, it's not a maester principle, it's a conciliary principle. That when you wanna help somebody, the place you begin is with what they're good at already, and you help them get better at it. Because what you don't want to do is in any way tear them down. You don't want to send them off on the incredibly difficult mission of attacking weaknesses. And, and you know, believe me, this is a lot of years of learning that I'm sharing with you to get here. <laughs> you don't start out in the area of weakness. Now, we have to attack weaknesses sooner or later, eventually. But to begin with, we want to take exactly where you're at. And again, that, that diagram, uh, you know, figure 13.1, fantastic diagram. I wish I'd had that 20 years ago. Uh, I don't know how the book is, but, uh, you know, I never actually studied this, true professionalism, until you. What? I studied the professionals. I'm like, that was it. That was my Bible, right? <laughs> so then I saw you post that diagram and going, what kind of idiot am I? I should have been studying this for 20 years now. <laughs> And yeah, anyway, it was ridiculously that, good. Okay. Oh, it's fabulous. So that mix, that gives you an idea that each person is going to come from a slightly different. So one's going to be more nurse, another is going to be more pharmacist, et cetera. That's true for the recruiting firm. Each firm is going to have a slightly different balance, and we have to go there to where they're strong and find how to improve results, like instantly, if at all possible. 
So that was just that qualifier. Yeah, and I think as far as strengths versus weaknesses, because I've thought a lot about this, and, and just with, with my other podcast, uh, Real Estate Uncensored, had a, a nice, shall we say, lively discussion uh, with my co-host live about this. Um, and I think, uh, I think the best way that I've found to look at it is if you're going to work on, work on weaknesses, work on the weaknesses within your strengths, right? So if you are a professional, if you're an aspiring musician, professional musician, you don't work on your weaknesses by playing another instrument, right? You work on the weaknesses right. within your strength. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, uh, that's something that, yeah. that has helped me a I lot. I think I have some metronome work I want to do with you. Oh, great. <laughs> some metronome work. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, it's also known as the, right uh, the drummer's... It over there? I can see it. My I beautiful metronome. It's from <laughs> 1930. It's a Seth Thomas original. Okay. All right. I'm going to leave <laughs> you to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So let's get back to the uh, the impact of the book had. So you basically took the principles yes. that you learned and the and the the construct of where what a professional services firm actually is, and you're able to take that and implement it with your clients. Now, did it give you any revelations on what your own business was and how you presented yourself and sold yourself to other businesses? It did, but that's, to me, not as interesting as the uh, transformation in the way I actually serve my recruiting clients, if, gotcha. if that's okay with you. To me, yeah, that's yeah, because, I, I mean, to me, you fall into definitely the, the psychotherapist end of things. <laughs> Just, yeah. I mean, that is the ultimate. That, that's that's the, the, the conciliatory huh? is like the ultimate expression of that business model, right? So you, so you knew exactly where you fell. You were secure in that, but that I gave did. you the framework to help other people grow into the business that was more perfectly suited for their personality. Uh, yes and no. Serving their personality was something I came very strong to already on my own. Uh, just to give you an example. Uh, I started studying Sigmund Freud's work my sophomore year in college, uh, and I, I never got, I, I don't have a college degree. I never finished college. Um, but whenever I've met psychotherapists, and most especially psychoanalysts, those specializing in Freud, and we discuss Freud, they always have this eye-opening, like, jaw-dropping, I never thought of it that way. I, I have all, you know, and so I've been studying psychology I don't know if I should say formally or just intensely ever since I was 20 years old. And by the time I started building my coaching practice, I was already very, very strong in all of those areas. Uh, you know, we could talk about religion. You have some idea about that from our own friendship. Uh, you know, I go to all these places. I go to family. I go to personal history. I go very deep into the mind, the heart, and the very soul of the individual. That's always been the case. No, it really was in the area of the professional service firm itself that Maester opened my mind. And so I want to talk about, if it's all right, two of the most important ideas that kind of come together. I'm pretty sure, although I didn't check beforehand, I should have, that they're mostly in chapter two. But I'm pretty sure we need chapter one as well for these two ideas. So the one of them is leverage. And let's talk about you know his simple idea of leverage. You take a more expensive guy, he needs to be doing a higher value task that actually challenges him or, or, or herself. 
Then you take a less expensive professional service provider. They need to be offering what may be a lower value at a lower price, but the key, and this was mind boggling to me when I really began to wrap my mind around it, is that at a younger stage of your development, there, there are more challenges to tackle at the lower level than when you're older and have already done that. So the work itself, at a lower level of pay, maybe even a lower level of value to the customer, but it's still gonna be fabulously challenging. And here's the revolutionary idea for me that I never had any idea of, is that the younger person who hasn't tackled this before, that's putting everything they got into it, they're gonna do a better job. The When you get the balance right of who is doing what work in the professional service firm, you're going to increase the quality over, uh, he, doesn't he call us gray hair? I got a lot of gray in my beard now. Uh, us gray haired guys, <laughs> you know, yes, we think we can do everything perfectly because we've been around forever. But the truth is we often get bored, we lose our discipline, and if we're not getting paid well, we're really not all that motivated. Our egos, you know, you know explode and we like, we don't want to do this boring work. We did that 10, 15, 20 years ago. Whereas with a young person who has not done it hundreds of times, like the older guy may have, and is learning it, is actually going to generate a higher quality output. That was absolutely mind-boggling to me. Uh, and so the leverage structure, and, and we'll apply that. In fact, why don't I go ahead and apply it to recruiting right now? Say recruiter is a, a billing manager. They've been on their own desk for a decade, for two decades, whatever, right? And they've done every one of these tactics. They, they know how to plan their day. They know how to put together their call list for marketing and prospecting. They know how to put together their call list for candidates and recruiting. They know how to make all the matches and they've done it over and over and over again. And let's say as well that the best spot in the market for them is kind of like a little bit lower. So we're not talking CEO or the C-suite or even necessarily VP or even sales management. Let's say that we're talking a, a, a salesman or some other function, doesn't have to be selling. Um, and so maybe it's a $70,000 a year position. Maybe that's the real sweet spot on that desk. There's the, the largest number of them, the largest demand. By the time you've been doing this for 10 or 15 or 20 years, you may not be the very best person to be energized and enthusiastic when you're reading your 17,000th resume right. uh, for this particular level of salesman, et cetera. Yeah. Whereas if you bring someone on who doesn't even know how to read a resume yet, but let's say, uh, here's one of my favorite examples. Let's say they got a degree in English in college. Uh, and so they get literature, they get arc, they get the whole drama of a person's life story. And when they're looking for this resume versus that one, and they're all nervous and they're all tense because they've never done this before. They don't know what they're doing. They're going to study that resume as if it was a page from the Bible. <laughs> older guy, he yeah, looks at it. Two seconds. He sees everything he needs. You see, the quality goes up. Mm -hmm. And so that's an, a direct application from Maester's idea of leverage to the recruiting practice. Yeah, that's follow? yes, that's really interesting, and and it's that that leads to another thing that hit me really hard out of the book, which is the the idea that whoever manages your project assignments is the one that's really running the direction of your firm. That was like absolutely, yeah. 
He who decides yeah, who gets on each project and what the mix of stuff, the mix of junior and senior professionals and who's doing what and whether people, individual people are being challenged along the way, who's, who's doing the asset milking and who's doing the asset building like in, and just all the mental effort that goes into actually properly structuring a real assignment with real professionals, that's something I don't think most people even think to put that level of effort into. No, you just nailed one of the greatest weaknesses in the recruiting industry, especially perhaps in the franchised world, which is really the franchised world and the small bedroom, you know, or garage shop, the, the solo. Those are the people that I know the best. I really don't know the big firm recruiting operations, so I don't know that I can speak to them. But in the world that I know, in the small shop, the owner-led firm still, you just took from Maester and gave us in the recruiting industry. So this is like a message that every recruiting owner should hear right now. Should listen, like, you know, hit replay, uh, repeat what you just said, Matt. Listen to it carefully. Then they got to go read Maester. Right. And then come back and say, they got to read them, at least the first two chapters. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, you know, the whole thing, right? But they got to read him, And then they got to come back with this question. As an owner of my own shop, I manage, which means I allocate resources. So I allow someone to work with this client, with that market, on this desk, uh, recruiting these kind of people. Uh, I allow these people to do recruiting calls, but they're not allowed to make presentations to customers. Then I allow this person to do the, uh, the account management of the These are things that uh, owners of recruiting shops make decisions over every day, although usually it's a pre-made decision. Me, you know, I'm the owner, yeah. <laughs> I'm the OLT account, and, you know, right. all right. Management, it is our greatest weakness. Now, there are some incredible people in our industry who have, I mean, that came out of the MRI world that have grown up their shops and have fabulous managers. I can think of maybe five, maybe 10. <laughs> uh, and they are amazing. I'm not going to mention them, uh, but I'm telling you, there are some amazing managers that have dealt with all of these issues, exactly like what you just mapped out. 99.9, .9, let's add some more nines, percent of the owners of professional services firms that are recruiters have never asked themselves, can I hire someone? train them up and empower them to actually manage in exactly the way you just said. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, and that's, and so, well, and that goes back to professionalism, like that, that grid. And he, he points this out, that most professionals like to think of themselves as brain surgeons when most clients want a nurse. And that, that disconnect forms the foundation of a, just a whole host of client management problems, lack of referrals, dissatisfaction, lack of cross-selling and upselling and whatever other, other selling you want to do to your clients, all, all, a lot of it stems from that disconnect between us wanting to see ourselves one way, clients expecting something else. Yes, but, but let's stick that, let, let's nail that point once more, Matt. It's a complete failure a professional services firm development vision when I, the owner, automatically allocate everything and have no idea that I can actually hire or partner. You know, we can, you know, we can have partners like law firms. Mm -hmm. I can hire and or partner with someone whom I will empower with their own leadership mission in exactly the resource allocation manner that you were just discussing. That vision is about as missing in our industry 
as any single strategic asset that we require. You cannot build a recruiting firm up from a franchised operation into a thing of value as long as you're the one who does all the asset and resource allocation personally. Uh, now, there, there's another line. I, I'm much more familiar with permanent placement recruiting than I am with contract. You know, these are kind of like two separate things, although, and I know the MRI world is doing fabulous in growing up their contract services. They're doing a great job from everything I hear. At any rate, uh, in a contract services model, there's a spread between what the employee is paid and what is billed out to the customer. And that spread is a continuous cash stream. And so when you build that up to a cash stream of million, million and a half, two million and north of that, you now have a business that's much easier to sell because it's all done by contract and it's not captured in the salesmanship, the discipline, the panning, the professional mastery of the individual performer or even the team. So that is a much easier business model to sell on the market. There's much larger number of people that can understand it. They can mm -hmm. see the contractual, they're, they're buying a yeah. cash stream, right? Yeah, they're buying an um, obligation that, that's, and, a, that's an actual uh, revenue source, contractual. right? But on the permanent placement side, what you're, you're buying is just a professional practice itself. And without the leader, there's essentially nothing there. Because let's say you got the greatest team in the world. They're being led by a great leader. You take that leader out, what's left? They can either go on their own or they're going to be attracted to go to another great leader. I mean, and so it's a very difficult model to build on. But those that have done so, and like I said, there are some that have done amazing jobs. What they do is they hire and partner with people that can be brought forward to understand, like what we were just discussing a moment ago, what the proper leverage is in their recruiting operation and can actually lead by way of resource allocation decisions, exactly like you were saying. And that vision, yes, it may be that it'll lead to a much more resaleable entity in the business, but I'm not too concerned with that. What I'm more concerned with is that we actually build a professional services vision for the unit itself, which basically means exactly the line you just laid out. The owner is doing that automatically. Can we get even one other person involved? The moment you do that, you have crossed a huge and a transformational line. Interesting. Well, <laughs> we could go for a long time on this stuff. Um, I do have one more concept ooh. I got to hit you with before we're done. Yes, there was. This was the second of two parts, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. And that is upper out. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about it. I'm very curious about oh, this. Oh, oh, probably the single most important idea in the entire book in helping me help my clients. Okay. Up or out. Um, you may remember, uh, I know you're pretty young, but you may remember that back in the 80s and 90s, we were very, very enamored of Japanese uh, business management models. Yep. And everybody was really like, Japan's going to take over the whole business world. I was absolutely part of that. Uh, I studied Kaizen. <laughs> I studied... <laughs> <laughs> I studied. You, dra you drank the Japanese Kool Aid. You, you drank. Oh, the tea. absolutely. Okay. I, um, <laughs> and we won't get into swordsmanship or Eastern right. philosophy. We, we won't get yes, into it. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, and, and so, the Japanese management model was, and it perhaps was a cliche, but I think there was a lot of truth to it. They had a very paternal 
picture of the company in relationship to its employees, where basically, once you signed on for the company, it was your job for life. Okay. And that, that spoke to my idealistic young. And back then, you know, I, I, I'm an insanely right-leaning conservative type person now. But back then, I was as far to the left as I am to the right now. So, <laughs> so my idealistic, you know, liberal. Uh, I, I, here's the way I've always explained my politics from my youth. I wasn't a communist. I absolutely was a socialist. Like, I was a proud socialist. But if there had been a pretty girl at the Communist Party, oh yeah, I would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's 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 good. It's it's a good thing the communists don't have the uh, the most attractive women, apparently. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not no. making I'm not making that generalization. No, we'll make no value I'm judgments about on my that. Personal history here. Okay. All right. So back then, in the 80s and 90s, I was still very left leaning in all of my politics and liberal orientation. Uh, I was thrilled when Clinton was elected. You know, I was so excited. All right. So, <laughs> and I wasn't a fan of Reagan. So you get the idea. Okay. okay. <laughs> so it appealed, um, it appealed to that, that inner, inner liberal sense. Oh, yeah. So, okay. but not, not what Maester did. Maester is guilty. He's part of my transition. Uh, so, yes, it. The Japanese management model of this whole paternalistic orientation, a type of bond of loyalty, an unbreakable bond between employer and employee. So it was employment for life. Oh, also, you know, I'm from Chicago. I'm of Italian heritage. We're like automatically pro-union, you know. Right. Uh, you know, management are the suits, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, this employment for life and i had by the time i really came to terms with this i think it was 97 or 98 i struggled with this in maester in fact let me share what this, i had to the get benefits of the upper out policy in relation oh, to that and went against everything i believed in it went against yeah. all of my deepest values yeah yeah um and so what i actually had to discover and and i think i, I know we're going long but i think you'll be happy to have this is that one of the great sources of the upper out mentality, philosophy, approach to a professional service firm actually roots in the McKinsey consulting firm. And as I was studying not only Maester, but also the McKinsey firm, uh, I found that they had a hiring practice of hiring three people all at the same time for exactly the same job and for the exact same training program. So three people are hired, and it's told to the people at the beginning, there will only be two who are kept. So from the get-go, the three people, they have to partner, they have to collaborate, they're working on the same cases, they're serving customers, they have to work together, but no one knows which of the three is going to get the boot and which of the two are going to get to stay. Uh, this blew my mind. I might even have my numbers wrong. Maybe it was only one would stay and two got the boot. I, I don't remember exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, it blew my mind. And then I found what may well be the most inspiring strategic idea that I've ever found in the world. That the McKinsey firm trained all three equally. All three were expected to perform. The McKinsey firm invested itself into all three and then they had a career plan for the people that left. 
Because with the McKinsey firm, once you're a McKinsey man, you're always a McKinsey man. And so what they had was the most aggressive and strategic outplacement program. For the person who made it through the training program and didn't get fired, right? They got outplaced where? Into a prospect or a customer. Mm -hmm. And so they've got a whole network of people that used to be at the McKinsey firm. And this was the, this is the creme de la creme of the strategic idea, Matt. That once you, you've graduated from Harvard or Yale or wherever they hired you from, you've now come to the McKinsey firm. You've been through a training program and you're not the one who's going to stay. You're not an in person, but you're still a McKinsey person, right? When you go to get hired in your next position, you'll make two, three, four, five times or more what you would have made had you gone any other career path. So in their upper out, they're investing into the person. They care about the person afterward. They expect the person not only to be a friend for life, but a customer. They're going to help manage that person's career up the corporate ladder from one company to the next or wherever they're going to go so that that person will one day be a CEO paying McKinsey millions upon millions of consulting dollars. Right. And there's this, this network, this web going out into the world from the upper out. Right. So as opposed to a lifelong employer-employee relationship, it's a lifelong friendship. Now that spoke to my Italian heart. A lifelong <laughs> strategic friendship. And so I had to struggle with that two, maybe three years. I, I'm not sure. I mean, but I, I, and I had to find these other connections until I could bring it back around. That there is no force to create quality, growth and development in a professional services firm when security is the number one value that the employee receives from the firm. Wow. All right. That bears repeating. So run that, run that last part by me again. So when, when the number one value that the firm gives to the employee is security, it removes then, much of the incentive for them to mentally and emotionally commit not only to the training process but also competing against their fellows to stay. Am I understanding that correctly? To put this, yes. Correctly. Yes. Uh, we'll delve it a little bit more. To put this in as close to Maester's own terms as, as I can, um, I think he would focus on the quality of the output. And you know, it'd be great to ask him at some point. But at any rate, I think he would focus on the quality of the output. That when security, now this is my concept, but I, it grew from my studies of Maester. Right. That when security, it, well, no, there's lots of places where he talks about, it's his concept, it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he talks about how you divvy up partnership. Right. How you, you know, do it in, in little pieces instead of the whole thing. This is the same thing. Okay. Uh, and so I, I actually had to pull all of that together. Uh, when security is the number one value, it is impossible to maintain quality of output. Your quality will suffer, uh, we'll, we'll take a term from physics, entropy. Uh, it will suffer degradation, it will degrade, it will go right. down. You cannot maintain an even level of quality. It's either going up or it's going down. When security is the greatest value that a professional service firm provides to its employees, quality is guaranteed to go down. Love it, that's fantastic. 
And not, yeah, and so and not I've to heard, get back into the politics of it, but the, I mean, this is why socialism as a experiment tends to fail. It's guaranteed because it values security uber alles, over everything, security right. over everything. And that's not good for people. It's not good for creatures. All of nature has stress and pressure, adaptation and response. One of my favorite influences, a guy you and I have not yet spoken about, Sir Karl Popper, has a wonderful book, amazing book by the title, All Life is Problem Solving. <laughs> I love that title. And so when you solve all the problems for someone, they are impeded. They cannot grow without those problems that move them forward. But let's bring this now right back to the other side of the security equation, especially for a recruiting operation. There has to be competition. Right. Without competition, that's what security wipes out. When you have lifelong security, you know you're never going to be let go under any circumstances, then there can be no competition for even keeping your seat. And that's what up or out wipes out. And so as I worked this through, I found, Matt, that my clients always fell in love with their employees. They couldn't help it. Recruiters have great hearts. They work with people all day long. It's a very romantic endeavor. They're introducing people. Will they fall in love? Yes or no. We may not use that language, but that's what's going on. Somebody makes a job offer. Somebody is so excited. They quit their old job. They're getting, and it's this whole human endeavor. Our, our product, our pieces of paper, resumes that, that are a code that reflect the human life and the professional career of that individual. It's all humans. And so, and it's, a, it's sales is the ultimate human embrace in the capitalistic world. And so uh, when my people, you know, and all recruiters, uh, when they, they interview, they fall in love with somebody, they hire them, the last thing in the world they ever want to do is let that person go. They never want to let them go. And so I found, <clears throat> excuse me, virtually to a shop, just a couple of amazing exceptions, uh, something I'd have to call poison by love. They love their people so much that no matter what the weaknesses are of the individual, even when they're disrespectful, disrespectful to the leader, disrespectful to the team, tardy to work, often missing, when there are other life problems, be it from drugs to everything else, right? They still would keep their people. There was no out, so therefore there was no up. Without out, there is no up. Up or has to be. If you don't come to terms with that, to build your relationship to your recruiting team and your professional services recruiting firm, you will absolutely set an unbreakable ceiling over the output, over the quality, over the performance, and absolutely over the volume and profitability of the business. Up or out is, if I were to pick a single idea from Macer, so nobody's going to remember anything else you and I just spoke about, and they're not going to read the book, that would be the one. Interesting. And it was the most difficult one for me by far. That's really, really interesting. I did not, uh, I did not have much struggle with that at all. Um, and maybe because we have very, very, <laughs> yeah, very different constitutions. You were a socialist like I was, were you? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> You've never yeah, been the a highest value right? on my values test is autonomy. So sad. No, I don't have that compulsion. <laughs> it's not the collective. <laughs> 
for you? No, no, <laughs> no, no, it's not the collective. Well, I can't, uh, I can't think of a better way to end it than that with the, with the ultimate takeaway, up or out. Uh, but there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about, um, and we could go for a long time, which is possibly why we might start an entire podcast just doing nothing but this it's because still it's so. Mine. You're still not committed. Uh, well, I'm no, I'm committed. It's only a matter of time. So we just got to figure out how to work it out on the schedule and all that all stuff. All right. So but, it's uh, only when, not Mike. Come on. Yeah, exactly. It's a matter of when. <laughs> well, I don't want to tease. I don't want to tease people too much with it. Like we're going to start it next week, and then they listen to this episode, and they're like, "Where is it at?" And then it's like two months away or something. I don't know. Anyway. You and I get to drink coffee. We're closers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, with that being said, all right. So remind people of where they can get uh, your your ebook, The Switch. So refresh people's memory on the website. The T H E, no space or hyphen or anything. The T H E conciliori, T H E C O N S I G L I O R I, theconciliori.com. Perfect. All right. And like I said, I'm working my way through it. It's really good. The mental exercises are phenomenal. Uh, the book that we've been discussing is Managing the Professional Service Firm. David Maester, M-A-I-S-T-E-R. So go out and get that. Seriously, go to Amazon, yeah. buy it, you know, used for super cheap. Uh, get five copies and send it to all of your friends. It's a phenomenal book. I can't or say enough good things about it. Or employees. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a little light week, weekend reading. It's only... Um, it's, uh, it's a it's a svelte 364 pages, but uh, yeah. <laughs> svelte? Whoa, what a word! <laughs> <laughs> love it, I love that word. All right, so anyway, with that being said, uh, remember to uh, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on iTunes, and uh, we've got more interviews, phenomenal interviews coming your way. If you'd like to uh, to host your own interview podcast, some, something along these lines, whether it's video or audio or whatever, we can uh, we can help you out. Just go to pursuingresults.com. You can check out all the information on that, that there. But until next time, guys, thank you so much. 